I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Turn to Psalm 119. I will get to Psalm 119 in a minute. Uh, but I discovered at the end of our session last Sunday night that I, I effectively brought confusion to some of you, and I didn't intend to bring confusion. The last thing we ended, it, we ended with last Sunday night is here. Uh, it had to do with the Bible uh, in terms of how it was collected, how the books of the Bible were collected. And I ask you this question, is, do you see the Bible as a fallible collection of infallible books or an infallible collection of infallible books? And I ask you, I told you that one of these was Roman Catholic and one of these was conservative evangelical. And I ask you which was our way of looking at it. And uh, we've got some defect, some, uh, we've got some closet Roman Catholics in here. Uh, they said that infallible collection of infallible books. Uh, but then I realized that how I wrote this uh, is not really uh, the best way it could be written. When I talk about a fallible collection, I'm not talking about the collection of the book. I'm talking about those who made the collection, those who gathered together to decide which books were to be in the canon. Does that make sense? Now, what the Roman Catholic Church says is that the councils of the church, the men who gathered to decide on the books in the Bible, those men were infallible. They were speaking for the church, and the church can never make a mistake. Now, what that means is in the Roman Catholic Church, the ultimate authority for any decision is not the Bible. What is it? It's the, it's, it's the, it's, ultimately, it is the Pope. But institutionally, it is the church. That whatever the church decides is absolute truth. That is absolute truth. Now, in our way of understanding things, we believe that the councils, uh, the first of those met in Nicaea in A.D. 325, then in Constantinople in A.D. 381, and there were others, that those councils were uh, places where men, men like you and me, fallible men met, sinful men met, seeking to discern and to do the will of God. These were not men that were perfect. They were not men that were without their flaws. But these men, looking at the books that had been in circulation, that were associated with an apostle, that were most useful to the church, that had given credibility to the gospel in the church, those books would be our canon. 
our rule, our guide. And they decided and affirmed what we know as the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. That is how we got the difference between the Protestant Bible and the Roman Catholic Bible. But the difference between the Roman Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible is far greater than the number of books. The Roman Catholic Bible includes what we call the Apocrypha. Uh, but you shouldn't get all uh, twisted up about that because the, the big difference between the two is, is th- that is a difference, but here's the big difference. big difference is that when you and I hold up our Bible, this is our sole authority. This is the absolute truth of God. When a Roman Catholic holds up the Bible, they say this book contains truth and it speaks truth, but it is not the absolute truth because the absolute truth is found in the church. You see, that's why it is, whenever I'm talking with a Roman Catholic, there's one question I always ask, are you a true Catholic? Because there are a lot of Roman Catholics that are not true Catholics. They don't even know what the Catholic Church teaches. If they are true Catholics, then the source of their authority doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the Pope, and it's mediated through their priest. If they're true Catholics, then they believe in the veneration, the reverence of the Virgin Mary. If they're true Catholic, they believe that they not only pray to God through Jesus Christ, they believe that they can pray to God through the saints of the church. If I can say it bluntly, if they're true Catholics, they believe in a lot that's that's heretical. So if they're true Catholics, they can't be truly faithful biblical Christians. That's why when I meet a when I talk with a Catholic and ask them, "Are you true Catholics?" and they don't know what that means, then they could in fact be Christians. They could, because they are members of the Catholic Church, but they don't even know what the Catholic Church teaches, which I think is a wonderful thing, because then they're open to being evangelized and uh, being brought into a proper understanding of what it means to have a right relationship with God. Well, we have talked about We've talked about the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is breathed out by God. It's God's expiration. We've talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible does not err. We've talked about the infallibility of Scripture, that the Bible cannot err. But I think the most important thing about the Bible, inerrancy is important, infallibility is important, inspiration is important. I think the most important thing is sufficiency. I think it's the most critical issue that we will ever face. Do we really believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Now, this morning, for example, we went from James 1 to Psalm 4, and we were talking about anger, and Psalm 4 gives a prescription for how to deal with anger. In other words, the Bible, if you were to ask, I'm angry, I have anger issues, how do I deal with it? You go to Psalm 4, the Bible gives you the answer. Here's my question for you, is the Bible enough? And the answer of the church throughout her history has been yes. The Bible is sufficient. 
And we need to turn to the Bible, not last, but first, to address and to answer the questions that we are asking. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about, all about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I want to read just the first 16 verses. And as I'm reading, I want you to think about its addressing the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That is, their way of living is to live under the authority of the Word of God. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. That is, what God speaks in His Word Because when we listen to what God speaks in His Word, we seek Him, the end of verse 2, we seek Him with our whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. That is, God's given us His Word that we might honor His Word, guard His Word, love His Word, know His Word, all that wrapped up in the Word kept. On Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The Word of God is so sufficient that we need to know it as fully as we can know it and abide by it as faithfully as we can because it's all that we need. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now listen to this question in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How? By guarding it according to your word. So you raise teenagers and they are struggling. What do they need more than anything else? What is it? They need the word of God. Teach them the word of God. Train them in the word of God. Soak their souls in the word of God. Read with them the word of God. Pray the word of God over them. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. Look at the next line. I think this is so important. I will not forget your word. Now, why is that so important? Because the word of God is sufficient. What we need is given to us by God in his holy word. Now, I want you to see, I'm just going to bullet point these, run through them pretty quickly here, uh, 11 things about the sufficiency of the Word of God. Number one, the greatest source of assurance that we have that the Bible is the Word of God is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. When a believer reads the Word of God, who's speaking to your heart while you're reading? The Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart while you're reading the Word of God, then that gives you assurance because 
Your spirit is connecting with the Spirit of God, and the connecting point is the Bible. Uh, When you're reading whatever novel you're reading at the time, uh, there's nobody speaking to you except yourself. This is a horrible book, or this is a great book. But when you're reading the Bible, something happens inside. I can't explain it. It's a beautiful mystery. But the Holy Spirit is speaking truth to you. Secondly, throughout the Bible, just like in Psalm 119, the Bible bears witness to itself that it is the Word of God. Thirdly, Jesus in numerous places, we looked at this last week, Jesus in numerous places testifies to the integrity and the sufficiency of the Word of God as all that we need. Luke 18, think about this. Uh, Luke 18 that tells the account of the rich man in hell and Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, where? In heaven. Now, there are a lot of people who read Luke 18 and they say that's a parable. It's not a parable. It cannot be a parable because parables do not contain names. This is an account of a beggar in heaven and a rich man. Isn't it interesting that we know the name of the beggar, we don't know the name of the rich man? The rich man's in hell. And what does he say? Send somebody raised from the dead to tell my brothers not to come to this place. And what do, what is the rich man told? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, what does that mean? That means if they don't believe the Old Testament, they got the Old Testament. They can read the Old Testament. If they don't believe the Old Testament, they wouldn't believe even if somebody was raised from the dead. Now, you know, we can think that way too, can't we? We can want somebody so to come to Jesus that this is what we think. If they just saw a miracle, if something marvelous happened, they would come to Jesus. Well, the testimony of Scripture is no, they wouldn't. Because the testimony that we need in order to bring us to Jesus is the testimony of Scripture. Uh, Fourthly, the ethical superiority of the Bible. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. That life comes to us through Jesus to whom witness is given through Scripture. Fifthly, the test of time. Just think about the long-standing viability and usefulness of the Bible in generation after generation, in place after place, in culture after culture, the life-changing transformation that comes when people have the Bible, and it changes their lives and changes their behaviors and changes their traditions because they receive the truth of God. Number six, the, the impact it's had and continues to have on people who read and study the Bible. The Bible is the only book given by God that when we read it, reflect on it, and study it, the Holy Spirit penetrates our hearts and changes us. Number seven, there is in the Bible this incredible unity in the midst of 
diversity. You know, I think about this from time to time. I wonder if you ever think about this. The Bible emerged over multiple, a, a number of thousands of years, three or 4,000 years, the Bible, the books of the Bible come to be. They're written by different men in different places and different cultures in different circumstances. These people don't get together and talk to each other. And yet, you can take the Bible and read from Genesis to Revelation over all these thousands of years, all these different places, different people, different cultures, different circumstances, and the Bible has this remarkable unity. A unity of theme, a unity of purpose, a unity of witness to the glory of God. That unity is impossible, I believe, apart from God. Next, I think this is number eight. There's an uncommon accuracy in the Bible. Even the worst skeptics of the Bible have to really work to bring anything into question about its accuracy. When I went to Israel last year, uh, our guide was a Jewish. Uh, he knew the Bible. It was embarrassing. He knew, the, he knew the Bible actually better than most of us preachers who were on that trip. He was not a Christian. He was Jewish. He was Orthodox Jewish. But the thing that he kept pointing out over and over and over again, and he would say things like, aren't you astounded by this? Doesn't this amaze you? What he kept pointing out was the historical and archaeological accuracy of the Bible. He said one day that there are actually archaeologists that work in Israel and their goal is not to discover artifacts. Their goal is to discover artifacts that disprove the accuracy of the Bible and they've not done it yet. <laughs> and they never will. Now this is an Orthodox Jew saying this. Now, if that makes an Orthodox Jew say that, it should make all of us say what they just said, hallelujah. Because this is God's book. This is what God has given us. There is this uncommon accuracy. You don't find this in any kind of other historical document, but in the Bible. Number nine, or number eight, the prophecies that are fulfilled. And not just a few of them, they're everywhere. All over the Old Testament, there are these prophecies that are, that are given. You just think about Isaiah 7, 14. Just think about it. Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That prophecy was given in the 8th century B.C., more than 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, some skeptic comes along and says, well, you know, <laughs> you know, in the Hebrew, the word is not virgin. The word is the word for young woman, a young woman of marriageable age. 
Well, that is true. But this is one of those places where if you don't read carefully and listen carefully, you miss how subtle and slippery Satan is. Because in the Hebrew language, a woman of marriageable age was what? She was a virgin. What happens is, this is sad, because some, some skeptic says, it doesn't say virgin, it says woman of marriage, marriageable age. Some American hears that and says, well, that means she may not have been a virgin. You read our corrupt culture back into sacred scripture. Does that make sense? Because you think in our culture, women of marriageable age most often are not virgins. But in Hebrew culture, not being a virgin at the time of your marriage was a crime that could be punished by stoning. Yes. Because that was entering into a sacred relationship. So it was unthinkable for a woman, unless she was raped, not to be a virgin at the time of her marriage. And remember this, there was no... There was no uh, there was no Valentine's Day <laughs> in ancient Hebrew culture. There was no such thing as is um, is um, uh, come up with a Hebrew name, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob uh, didn't see Rebecca walking down the street and say, "Hey, I want to get her." No, that's not our work. Jacob's mom and daddy said to Rebecca's mom and daddy, "Your boy is going to bury my girl." All the marriages were arranged. It wasn't a romantic affair. None of that happened. It wasn't, hey, I'm going to get you a box of candy. You're going to marry me. None of that stuff happened. It was, it was all arranged. And, and, and so that consummation of that marriage happened most often when girls were what age? Most often, what age? They're around 13. So... You, you think about Isaiah 7, 14, 800 years before Jesus is born, and that prophecy is fulfilled exactly as it was prophesied. You could go on and on throughout the Bible, hundreds of them, and the preservation of the Bible. Uh, this precious book has been preserved in the languages of the world across the cultures of the world. Ligonier Ministries in Orlando, Florida, just uh, published and released the Reformation Study Bible in Spanish, and they published multiplied thousands of copy, copies, and the Hispanic-speaking world in Latin and Central America is so hungry for the Word of God that they sold them out immediately, because now they not only got the Bible in their own language, they got a study Bible in their own language, and they're having to go back to the printer and print more Bibles to get them in his, into Spanish. Uh, the, just the preservation and the changed lives. Just think about the numbers of people whose lives have been changed by the Bible. You could go to a Gideon conference and you could hear and should hear story after story after story after story. It's somebody who went to a motel room. That still happens, praise God, where they have still motels, hotels, 
where the Gideons can put Bibles in the drawer. Unfortunately, today, in order to accomplish that, you have to put right beside it what? The Book of Mormon. Yeah, by the, the Book of Mormon has to go. That's the only way it can happen. But by God's grace, this is the power of the, the Holy Spirit. There are people who go in thinking they're going to kill themselves at night. And before they go to bed, they pull the Bible, the Bible out of the drawer and they start reading and the Holy Spirit speaks and they are saved. That, that's God. And it's God working through the power of his word. Now, this last one I want you to see because it is so important for us to recognize. Very few people even question the absolute truth of God or the absolute authority of the Bible until the 17th century. It was only in the late 17th century and then into the 18th century that people began to question the authority of the Bible because in the late 17th century and into the 18th century, a major change in worldview happened. That is a major change in how people saw the world and understood the world began to happen in the late 17th century, came into full view in the 18th century during the birth of what was called uh, philosophically and otherwise the Enlightenment. And this was the shift and the, the results of that shift uh, and the bitter fruit of that shift we are reaping in our day. Now here was the shift. Prior to uh, the latter part of the 17th century into the 18th century, almost everybody understood that the center of the universe around which everything revolves is who? God. Nobody doubted that God created the world. Nobody. The word skeptic. You can go back and read philosophers and so-called scientists. I should not say it that way. That's not true. You can go back and read philosophers and scientists prior to the late 17th into the 18th century and they all affirm there is a God, this God made everything that is, and this God rules over everything that is, and he rules over everything that is for his purposes. We are made by this God to serve him. The early scientists went about their activity as scientists believing that God created the world, so the job of the scientist is what? Very important, very viable, very necessary. The job of the scientist, because prior to the late 17th, 18th century, everybody believed that God made the world and everything in it, and since God made it, there is an order in the world. There's an order in the world. The world is very orderly. It is a cause and effect world. 
So the role of the scientist, whether that scientist is a physical scientist, a natural scientist, a medical scientist, whatever that person's job is, is to discover how this great God did what he did in putting the world together. The world has an order to it, and that order is systematic. The world works because God set it in motion to work, and the scientist's job is to find out how it works. So, science was seen to be an exact discipline to discern through thinking, through working, through experimentation, how God created, not how God created the world, but how the world that God created works. Because prior to the late 17th century into the 18th century, the primary understanding of the world was that God rules over the world and this God reveals himself in his world. And this God reveals himself in his word. When the enlightenment happened, all of a sudden, everything changed. And we moved from God being the center of the universe to who being the center of the universe? Humans. All of a sudden, the world doesn't revolve around God anymore. The world revolves around the human being. So God did not make the world for his glory. God made the world for whom? For us and our pleasure. The world was made by God for our enjoyment. And the world was not made by God in a way that's orderly that we can see as we study how the world works, we begin not with God's revelation, that is, God makes himself known, we begin with our reason. Now, what happened? What happened was the intersection of two realities. Number one, when you start with your reason and your logic, I don't care how smart you are, when you start with your reason and logic to figure out how this great God made the world, you're going to come up empty at every turn, right? So what are you going to conclude? We can't figure out how God did this through our reason. We can't figure out the ways of God through our reason. So there must not be a God. And if you start with the world exists for yourself and for your pleasure, and yet no matter how hard you try, you can't find pleasure by going that way, <laughs> then you determine that life is empty, life has no meaning, life has no purpose. When life is all about you and it's all about your making sense of the world, you keep coming up empty. You arrive at the place where through your reason you figure out there must be no God. And if there is a God, he doesn't exist to bring you the pleasure that you feel like you deserve. So you arrive where we are in 2021. 
Bruce Jenner says, all my life I have felt like a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm not Bruce Jenner, I'm Caitlyn Jenner. I can't find pleasure in being a man, so I must be a woman. I can't find pleasure in being a woman, I must be a man. I don't find pleasure in being a heterosexual, so I must be a homosexual. You arrive at the place where the whole world has collapsed into chaos because we've turned the world upside down and God is no longer the center of the world, humans are, and people have pursued their own passions deceived by the devil, and it's going to deliver increasing emptiness, increasing despair, increasing defeat. I would say you wait about another three to five years and you're going to have people all over this country and all over the world that are crying out of emptiness and pain. Many of whom who've had sex reassignment surgeries. Many of whom who've gone down horrible paths and have contracted deadly diseases. And they're going to show up at your house or your place of business or your church. And they're going, to, they're going to want to know where the meaning is. That's why in our day and time, we don't compromise our commitment to the absolute truth of Scripture. We give ourselves completely to the absolute truth of Scripture, and we communicate it lovingly and caringly. We don't do so in a way that puts people off. We want to communicate the truth of God, but we want to do so in a way that calls people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are in a very uh, critical period uh, in our history in this country in which as the culture collapses, people are going to cry out for meaning and we're the only ones. I'm telling you, the church is the only people in the universe that have the answer. And we must be at a place where we can communicate the answer. Now I want to say one other thing here uh, that... uh, kind of shift gears here, but I, th- I think this is important to say. We believe, I believe we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that it's inerrant, infallible, and that it's sufficient for everything that uh, we need. So we have to read and we have to study the Bible. So I want to talk just a few minutes about these two things, interpretation and application. These two things are distinctively different and intimately connected. Interpretation, application. Interpretation answers the question, what does the Bible mean? Application answers the question, what does the Bible mean to me? Do you see the connection? Do you see the difference? And let me ask you a question. Would you agree that if you get wrong what the Bible means, you're going to get wrong what it means to me? Would you agree with that? You've got to get that right. 
You've got to get interpretation right or you'll get application wrong. And you can't go to application until you get the interpretation correct. Now, you're not Hebrew and Greek scholars and you shouldn't be. Unless you want to be and then go for it. I think that's wonderful. So you're going to operate with translations. Most of you, all of you, are going to read the Bible in a translation. You need to be careful, and I want to help you with this. You need to be careful in selecting the translations of the Bible that you use. You want to use good uh, translations. Now, the best translations for study are those translations that are done by scholars who read, who understand Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible was written in those three languages. The Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, we're very blessed, uh, and I don't want to embarrass her, but we're very blessed to have people like Denise Corsi in this church. She is bilingual. She speaks Spanish fluently. She speaks English fluently. Now, I promise you, if I ask her tonight, are there certain sayings in Spanish that are hard to bring into English? You would say, yes. <laughs> right? Are there certain sayings in English that are hard to get into Spanish? Yeah. That's true in every language. I don't read Aramaic. I, I, there's only a portion of the Bible that's in Aramaic, so I've never invested any time in learning Aramaic. But I do read Hebrew and I do read Greek. And I can promise you one of the greatest difficulties I face, one of the greatest challenges in preaching, is that there are some Greek phrases and Greek concepts and Hebrew phrases and Hebrew concepts that are just about impossible to bring into English. And it's frustrating. Because I so much want to be faithful to the Word of God, and I want you to hear and to know what the Bible teaches in its languages. Now, I don't expect you to learn these languages. That's impossible. Because we've got great translations. There are two kinds of translations. This is not on the screen, but... There are two kinds of translations available to students of the Bible. The first kind is called formal. That is a translation where the scholars who translate the text are trying to make sure that every Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, is translated into English. Every Greek word in the Greek New Testament is translated into English. That means when you're reading these translations, you're reading their best shot at bringing Greek and Hebrew into English. You need a Bible like that. And you need it, particularly if you're going to teach. Now, the best of those Bibles on the market right now is the English Standard Version. It's way up here, top of the line. That's why we have it as our pew Bible. That's why I preach from the English Standard Version. I don't preach from the English Standard Version because I just think it's prettier. <laughs> I know without a doubt because I check translations that this is the best. The second best is the Christian Standard Bible published by Lifeway. It's not as good as ESV, but it's very, very good. The third best is the New American Standard Bible uh, that's an older translation but still very excellent, 
And then the fourth would be the New King James Version. These are all formal translations. They're wonderful. If you're going to teach, if you want to do Bible study, you need a Bible like this. Then there are dynamic translations. These are the translations that they're not trying to bring the Hebrew or the Greek into English. What they're trying to do is make the Bible readable. They want you to be able to read it. So they're not translating words, they're translating concepts. And there are some good ones out there. The New International Version is this kind of Bible. The New English Standard Version, the New English Bible is this kind of Bible. The, uh, and there are others like these. If you're just using, if you're just reading the Bible and you're participating in Bible studies, uh, if you can afford it, you need to have one of each kind. That would be wonderful. But if you're only going to buy one Bible, I would encourage you, I would encourage you with everything in me to buy like an ESV or a New American Standard or the Christian Standard Bible. Buy one where you can know as you're reading it that they've made a concerted effort to bring what is in the Hebrew into English, what is in the Greek into English. If you're going to interpret the Bible, interpretation, let's talk about that a minute. If you're going to interpret the Bible, then you're, let's, let's say you're teaching through the book of Acts. We're, the gospel project right now is in the book of Acts. You want to know the context. You want to know the context of the passage that you're studying. You want to know the style that the writer is using. You want to know the purpose and meaning of the words in the text. Uh, you want to be able to dig as deeply as you can into a text that you're teaching. I would think if you're going to study the Bible, you want to, you want to get serious about going as deeply in the Bible as you can go so you can get the meaning right. You don't want to miss the meaning. When I'm teaching through James, I'm going to come to James 3. You know what James 3 says? Don't, don't many of you become teachers. Why? Because God will judge teachers with a stricter judgment because the call of the teacher is to get the meaning right. If you get the meaning wrong and teach a wrong meaning, you're not just hurting yourself. Who are you hurting? You're hurting everybody you're teaching. Now, this is why not only, not only uh, do you need a good translation, you need a good study Bible. Now, I've seen study Bibles floating around here. Most of you have study Bibles. That's a wonderful thing. Now, I want to make a confession here. <laughs> I own three study Bibles. Until two months ago, I'd never opened them. I had no idea what they said. And so I thought, hey, uh, all three of them were given to me as gifts, so I didn't have any skin in the game. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to open these things and see if they're worth the investment. Man, I've got them on my desk now because they're rich. So if you're teaching... 
If you're teaching and you're saying, well, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, I don't know not to be teaching. No, you should be teaching because you've got these study Bibles and you've got Lifeway curriculum that is very detailed and you've got the money, I hope, to buy commentaries. If you don't, come see me and I'll loan you one that I'll never get back, but I'll loan it to you because you want to get the meaning right. Now, the best study Bible on the market right now is the, the English, the uh, ESV study Bible. The, the ESV Bible has a study Bible. It's the best. I, it's intense. Second best is the Reformation study Bible. Some of you have the Reformation study Bible. Great, great study Bible. The third best is John, done by John MacArthur. It's the MacArthur study Bible. Those three study Bibles are outstanding. I love it when I'm in a meeting. Sometimes this happens in elders' meetings, deacons' meetings. Somebody's teaching, and they get done with the teaching, and one of our guys will say, well, my study Bible notes say. (laughs) That's great. You can get everything you need by getting a good translation and then using a good study Bible to get at the meaning. Now, I'm going to encourage you here, I hope, and I'm going to exhort you at the same time. Don't go here, application, until you've got interpretation. Because not only will you mess up your own soul, you'll mess up others. Don't get to it means to me until you've gotten to what it means. Don't go to, well, I want to tell you what the Bible says to me in this passage, and you don't know what it says, actually, because interpretation has to come prior to application. That is why, see if this makes sense to you. I believe this is true. I believe this is the way God ordered the Bible. If you were to say to me, we've got, We've got three ladies here and Greg and Denise here. I'm going to put them around a table. They're going to read a passage, and they're all going to tell me what it means, and they've got five different meanings. You know what that means? It means God's a God of confusion, not order. You don't have five different meanings. You have five different applications. How many meanings does every text of the Bible have? Every text. You read the parable of the prodigal son. How many meanings does it have? One. You better get it right. Now, how many applications does it have? Hundreds. But the applications come out of the meaning. That's why you want to work hard, pray hard, study hard, research hard to make sure you get the meaning right and then let the application emerge out of the meaning That's taking the Bible seriously, and it's treating the Bible as the sacred text it is. Every time you open this Bible, we all know this. You know who's talking when you read? God. I don't want to miss anything he's saying. I want to get every word, and I want to get it right. 
One of the reasons I love being a pastor is I want to help you understand what he's saying. And I want you to get it right. It's not my job to apply it to your life. Whose job is that? That's yours. My job is to make sure you get the meaning right. And then apply it as the Holy Spirit leads you to apply it at different places in your life. Father, a beautiful day you've given us even in the rain to be able to worship you and to bow before your throne to adore you to sing praises to you this morning and worship, to gather in Sunday school, to gather under your word. I thank you, Lord, for every Sunday school teacher in this church. And it doesn't matter to me whether they're teaching two-year-olds or 102 years old. It is so important that uh, we teach your word. We, when we're teaching two-year-olds that we sing your word and share your word and pray your word, that we do so with joy and we do so with accuracy. And I thank you for the Sunday school teachers in this church that, that uh, really work hard and pray hard uh, to make sure that, that we get the meaning right. And uh, I pray that you would help us to, to feel not the heavy weight of that, but the joyful weight of that. And God, we are so thankful tonight that we live in a place where we not only can get your word, but we can get these study Bibles and we can get commentaries and we can go really as deep as we want to go in learning and learning together what your word teaches us. And bless us, I pray, this week. Use us this week. May we honor you in what we do, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.